I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. <clears throat> Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 5 of season 1, featuring special guest Sofia Elena Gurule on abolition and immigration. Today's episode was recorded on March 22nd, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, Daily Prayer for Today's Catholic, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Building a Movement of the Ecumenical Christian Left, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics, Where Peter Is, There Is the Church and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is the Juan Diego Network, Catholic audio for Latinos. The Juan Diego Network uh, is founded by Jose Manuel de Urquidi, based in Monterrey, Mexico, and he reached out to me on a reference from Rafael Piña Valdez, and offered me the resources of the Juan Diego Network for producing and releasing folk phenomenology. And I owe them both a great debt of gratitude for not only the gift of those resources, but also for the regular uh, technical instructions and check-ins that Jose Manuel does uh, with me regularly to, to this day. The Juan Diego Network will also be uh, sponsoring episode eight with Rodrigo Guerra on El Ser y la Persona, an episode in Spanish on being in the person. In addition to their support for folk phenomenology, the Juan Diego Network offers a wide variety of podcasts, primarily in Spanish, uh, some of them hosted by Rafael and by Jose Manuel, uh, one with Jose Manuel that I did a long interview in Spanish with, but they also offer other podcasts, and one in particular I think is notable with today's theme with Sofia Elena Gurule, namely Immigration. Their podcast From South to North is a scripted fiction podcast that follows Pepe on his adventures from Guatemala to the United States. I've been able to pilot, uh, to listen to two preview pilots of the show, and I think it's a very powerful, qualitative account of the reality from the side of those who are migrating of what the immigration issue looks like. And I think it's truly from that side of the issue that Sofia Elena Gurule uh, speaks from and, and thinks from and, and even I would say um, feels from in, in her abolitionist approach as an immigration attorney. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave us a review or a rating, and you can also drop a tip. 
You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media with dedicated accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's episode starts in medias res, right in the middle of things. Uh, we began speaking and comparing and contrasting our respective ancestries and genealogies and relationships to the Southwest parts of the United States and our families. And it's in this into the middle of things and this personal encounter that uh, a very strong language, uh, even explicit language conversation emerges that I think is not lacking in life and in flavor, in sabor, as we might say in Spanish. And this is certainly one aspect of what it means to love the world, dilexit mundum. Those people have issues. They're my people. <laughs> They're my people. They're a hundred, you know, know, I found, I found this, um, like my great grandmother, who's my godmother was like, I don't know, someone that was interviewed a lot in Salt Lake City. So there like exists yeah, these like really- those clippings you put up. Right. So she has this like interview she did in like the seventies and it's pretty long. It's like 25, 30 pages of just like transcript wow. of her like talking and she gets into it and it's like so fascinating to me that she like was getting into all those issues like even in like the 70s and 80s and eventually also in the 90s of her being like there's the people that refer to themselves as like spanish yep kind of fuck those people i don't connect with those people yeah i get why they're like that but i don't get why they're like that because they're facing the same issues as like mexicans in the united states and it's like she gets into like the whole thing and I'm I mean like, we're already in it right so and by in it I mean a lot of things including this actual interview which this is like the craziest start to an interview I've ever had um, but let me tell you a quick story to start off here and uh, to everyone listening we have Sofia Elena Gurule with me today for this episode of Folk Phenomenology and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna run a little bit of interference here just because this story completely jacked me up about like two almost three summers ago now in Monterrey. So I visited um, Monterrey Tech. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a polytechnic um, uh, university in, in Mexico. I was there um, a, as a guest for a, a colleague of mine, uh, Marta Sanudo. She's actually left the university now. And now she's working in the Ministry of um, Education, Culture and Sport. Educación, Cultura y Deportes. Anyhow, she brought me over and I had a lot of meetings with different people. And one of the people I had a meeting with was with a historian who was a gringa from Houston who's lived her whole life in Monterrey, married to a Mexican. And her area of history was basically like border women's history, right? So kind of crazy niche. Um, and she said something along the lines of like, I don't know, like, Oh, what's your oh she was like what's your maternal last name and i was like montano and she's like oh interesting nuevo mexicanos i was like yeah um and i made this joke and this is where it gets into what you were talking about i was like you know that family likes to say they were spanish but we all know the truth ha 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 and she's like actually that's actually quite uh historically complicated she's like there were a lot of crypto judíos 
who mm -hmm. during the Pureza de Sangre Laws in Spain, they all ran to Portugal because it was easier to be a Jew and a crypto Jew in Portugal than it was in Spain for a minute. And as mm -hmm. soon as they could catch a boat across, across the Atlantic, they caught one. But most of them migrated north and not south. And you can see their sort of crypto Judaism in the kinds of Norteño foods like goat, cabrito, and like all these things. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you know, a lot of those people when they came in early, and if you're talking 16th century, this is the same era as mine. She's like, you might be surprised, but they were fairly like, they were fairly nativist and they clung to their own and they did so for centuries. And her whole thing was like, you might be surprised, but like, yes, obviously there's a certain kind of racist desire for a kind of whiteness or European identity. But there's also some historical reasons for that that are actually embedded in the way in which those people migrated north. I don't know if that's true for your family, though, because you got the whole French thing. I don't have that. There's the French. I mean, I don't want to spend all this time talking about this French colonizer because I could really get into it. But he has a whole fucking narrative and you can Google it and it's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's on my dad's, you know, that's on my paternal side. And sure. on my mom's side, I mean, actually, basically all of her family on both sides are from New Mexico. Like, okay. very much the border crosses type of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, thing. Totally. Whereas, like, you know, my mom's maiden last name is Montoya. Okay. And. Oh, that's so Well, no. Spanish. Her. Right. Her grandmother's maiden name is Montoya. Her last name is Cordova, which is like also Even more very, Spanish. Oh my gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and my grandmother's very like, like very Mexican, but also very like understands. What I what I find so fascinating about the women in my family, particularly like my grand my grandmothers and my great-grandmothers is like they really understand these distinctions in a way that yeah. you're like, I don't know how I feel about it, but also like they're, they're being honest. Like she's very like, no, I am a Mexican hillbilly is like how she refers to herself. I grew up in the mountains. <laughs> I did not speak any English growing up. It yeah. like, was something that was like basically beat out of me once I did start going to school. Were they and sheep herders? No, she actually, I should ask them that. There's like yeah. a lot of photos of my great grandfather herding some sheep. Yeah. And they were like up in the mountains in New Mexico, yeah. just like. So we're doing sheep their people from the Chama Mountains up in like Albuquerque area. Interesting. There's actually yeah. an area of Mesa Verde, which is now on the Colorado side, has been uh, historically preserved called Calvario. And it was an area that uh, Spanish. <laughs> uh, Hispanic. This is a place where Hispanic works really well. Hispanic does a ton it of does. work with these people. Yeah. Um, one of my resentments about that word getting sort of crushed so fast. But anyhow, um, Hispanic sheep herders uh, would come to this area called Calvario and her put their sheep together in order to have kind of these prayer ceremonies. And the ceremonies themselves were like Catholic-ish, pagan-ish. Um, they were called the penitentes. So these were people who apparently the Franciscans told, you need to come to our missions and get in line because they were there before the Franciscans. And they were like, mm -hmm. no, we were here first and we're like more religious than you. And, and they apparently got like excommunicated at one point or anyhow, there's, there's a whole thing. And that's the same area, by the way, that's the same Mexican hillbillies. <laughs> I like that. Right. Yeah. No, that's what she always says. But my, they're from like, every time I ask her the town where she grew up, she's like, what? 
She's what like, town? I guess. Yeah, she's like, what do you mean a town? Like, yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. up there in the mountains. And she'll be like, I don't know, Cleveland, Mora, I think is like a name of a small town. And yeah. I don't even know. So but, my grandpa was so secretive about this. I'm, I'm actually lying. Like, he, he actually wasn't secretive, but basically no one believed him. So I used to go fishing with him. And he would talk about places, but like that tree over there, that fence line, that river. Um, and he would tell some stories that go along with it. And we were all kind of like, okay, cool. But honestly, like, I don't know, it didn't register. My uncle Pete started looking essentially for this encampment called Calvario that grandpa used to talk about. And he literally found it one day, just way out while he's elk hunting. And that's whenever they, and, and he started going to it kind of like on pilgrimage without telling anyone. Cause the other side is like that cross, the Calvario cross was still there. And my family, mainly my aunts and uncles, they had the main claim on it. They had to decide whether to remove it and have it put into some kind of record and museum or something and have them create a replica or whether to leave it there and let nature but take they its decide. place. They chose to leave it, which I think was the right choice. Um, it is. I know, mean, I, mean, I just learned about it, but like in my opinion, I think that. Yeah, I think you're right. Like I was strongly felt that way before. I think because of COVID and like my grandma passed away during COVID, not because of COVID, but right. she, we weren't able to go to the funeral. And I thought more about the fact that like, you know, the fact that my kids can't easily get there right now has kind of woken me up to the fact that maybe these natural cause things aren't quite what they're cracked up to be. Maybe they should have put that cross away for posterity, but no, I think you're still right. I, I still agree with it kind of in my heart, I guess. It's funny. We st <laughs> we didn't even start. We just like, like last names came out and, and all this, you know, talk started falling into kind of the interview. We just sort of fell into it. Right. Cause I'm like, I could even keep going from what you're saying, but I'm like, I'm gonna hold. Yeah, I think it's probably good to hold. Otherwise, this will become kind of like this weird ethnographic uh, thing, you know, which is probably worth doing at some point. But the reason I invited you here wasn't because of your New Mexican roots, um, particularly, but mainly... And also Mexican. It gets... It gets it's, Mexican, New I mean, Mexican, Utah, gets, hill, you know, Mexican hillbilly, all that stuff. Um, and of course I've got, you know, I'm split between the Texican and the New Mexican, uh, thing. One last thing on this, we could trying to get out of it. You can't get out though. My grandparents were both, you know, my, 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 my New Mexican grandparents could speak, they were bilingual. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but my, 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 my Mexican grandparents from Texas, like my grandpa never spoke a single word of English his entire life. Um, and my grandma could speak a really broken, like grocery store English, right? Um, and so whenever they would meet sometimes, uh, which was occasional, but I was always there because there was no other reason for them to, to meet other than to see us when we were mm -hmm. living with them. Uh, they would try to talk to each other, obviously in Spanish. And the dialect, the New Mexican Four Corners, Colorado, Mm -hmm. dialect of Spanish and the border Texican, Tejano, Norteño accent. I mean, they could barely understand each other, 
which is to me like just like wild because if you look geographically i mean the distance relatively speaking when you think about these places i mean they're neighbors right but yeah it shows you when you drill into this stuff you don't so much find unity you actually find more radical diversity in a kind of way oh yeah sometimes when like my grandmother speaks spanish to me i'm like she uses words that i'm like i don't know what the fuck that means and yeah. i have to ask her and be like what and then she'll like break it down and be like you don't know that and i'm like no i don't know that like what yeah. do you mean why would i know that but that's just how no, it is funny and the tortillas were different Bo- both flour tortillas so in the north People, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I get the corn thing, and that's really cool. I ride for flour. I can't. I gotta I'm be honest. Same. I'm the same. I don't. I, I can't hide it. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, all, you know what? That's, that's who, all I want to eat. Yeah, that's who, like being able to make that shit from scratch, which my grandmother has taught me a number of times, yeah. is like, no, nah, I, I mean, they're delicious, and you can't buy them. You know, like you can't. You have to make them. Yeah. No, no. I can't eat a preservative flour tortilla. Like, it's not... I can smell I can, through the plastic. But, but no. I don't feel good about myself when I do. Let's put it that way. No, no, no. It won't... I won't... I just won't do it. Like, I just can't. I'm, I'm that bad. Um, of course, like, that doesn't mean... It means that the, the, when I'm lazy, I have to go to the Canadian specialty Mexican store and pay $11 for eight of them fresh frozen. <laughs> And so, that's so crazy. instead, I like go like hyper yuppie instead of you know being right, down to earth because that's, that's the way like hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the reason though that I had uh, uh, reached out to you and you were like at the very top of my list, and I'm so glad you said yes, was um, because uh, we've known each other for a good while, and if we go into the story of how we met and all that stuff, I feel like we'll just the whole episode will be gone but fast forward through um whenever i think about uh the the political the spiritual the moral and ethical work of abolition and abolitionism um i talk obviously about what angela davis and you know i mean (laughs) there's a lot of people to talk about and there's a lot of people to mention but but i often actually talk about you and your work uh only because it's like it's live like i can literally check your your twitter feed and see different cases and different causes and while obviously you do have a activist platform you're also doing the activist work in the actual form of litigation and advocacy through law right and so I, what I wanted to talk about was like here in Canada, there's a, an indigenous uh, scholar who kind of has like made the slogan of decolonization is not a metaphor, or I think it might have been indigenization is not a metaphor. And uh, to be honest, like I kind of like I have different minds about that because I also like think metaphors are important. Um, but I like to talk about you and your work uh, to people and especially to my students to show them that like abolition and abolitionism uh is is like abolish ice is not just a slogan it's actually a project and it's actually a project that is alive and well and ongoing and for me pedagogically i want that to be my project but but that but pedagogy has its limits like you know um i can only educate up to a point 
there has to come a point in which sort of that's exhausted and we have to get into the sort of uh, the nitty gritty of stuff. So I, I wanted to, as much as you're comfortable, uh, talk a bit about, on the one hand, uh, how you understand abolition and abolitionism, um, where that, where you see that both in your work, but also just as a matter of just the ideas and then um, how that makes itself real, how that becomes incarnate, so to speak, in the the kinds of uh, literal on the ground work that you're doing, because it's it's just so important. And just thank you for all the work you do, right? Wow, that was quite the intro. I mean, like, or like the intro question into everything. Yeah. I'm like very touched by a lot of the things well, that you said. Well, we're in it. Yeah, we are in it. Um, it's funny too because like even the conversation that like we started having about our families and our histories and our ancestries like very much is relevant to a lot of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of abolition and, and specifically in terms of border abolition and getting even more deeply into that because I definitely came to you know prison industrial complex PIC abolition through a really long journey <laughs> that is like very personal in a lot of different ways but also just intellectual and then also going through law school and basically leaving law school being like why don't we just abolish prisons like in a in a criminal procedure two class <laughs> in front of a bunch of other like law students who are like I don't know what you're talking about but I basically had seen Miriam Cabas speak at NYU law by total happenstance in a really weird way which is actually where a lot of my now comrades actually were at too. And we're mm. like, how did we end up here? I mean, Mariam Kaba has a, has a lot to do with it, but to get to like the original answer to your question, like what does abolition look like every day for me? I mean, well, one, it doesn't look totally like litigating in court or litigating okay. at all. <laughs> like it really, I mean, that's like a, a mechanism, but Every day I go into court and I'm like, or go into court meaning like calling in or whatever it is. Sure. Or like writing briefs to file in court. Sure. Like, this is a joke. <laughs> like, it's a very like constant like thought that I have. Like, I deal with a lot of cognitive dissonance actually as an attorney who is an abolitionist. But I do try to incorporate like a lot of different types of litigation strategies to push that as far as I can. But I really think abolition is about community, about doing the work every day of basically deciding I actually am living in a collective and in a community and if we actually want to abolish prisons we have to redefine the way that we relate to one another like uh. we actually need to be doing I mean I feel like when you're referring to my Twitter as an activist space I agree it is and basically I am constantly trying to uplift like mutual aid funds information like things that i'm listening to and reading from like it's funny that you talked about like the limitations of pedagogy because i constantly am thinking about the, the limitations of litigating and being an wow. attorney wow. and a lot of the time i'm like i should stop trying to even like interact with the state <laughs> and yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to like think that they can actually change like the u.s nation state has to be abolished like as well like you have to abolish capitalism, you have to abolish like settler colonialism, like you have to abolish all of these things if you're really serious about it. So sometimes I like really reflect and I'm like, why am I even trying to like 
get a law to be changed or different, even if I am taking like an abolitionist perspective. And when I say an abolitionist perspective, I'm literally like line editing a bill being like, take this out, take this out, take this out, because this is going to expand this and we need to actually shrink it. And like, I'm, I have that like theory dictating what I do or even like the way that I write arguments, but I'm like, this is a joke. It's just like a, like appealing to empire empire. And sometimes I'm like, Oh, I should just like go to school and like do these things. And like, I have so many more books I need to read that I'm like, you know, not finishing reading that would actually totally expand my mind of how I like do my work. But instead I'm like at my computer click clacking, like writing legal briefs and stuff up until 5am or whatever. And like not taking the time to actually do that work more deeply because for me being an abolitionist, being an attorney, all of these things, it's like, I'm really obsessed with explaining things really clearly to other people. Like my Twitter is me trying to be like, how can I convey these like kind of complicated ideas and like clear short tweets and get, and get people to actually like engage and listen. And, you know, like speaking of Kenneth Harshawali, I won't shut the fuck up about her on Twitter, but it's because her book has been really resonating with me lately, Border and Roll. And I'm like, how can I connect these, these, kind of complicated ideas they're not that they're not that complicated to me but i recognize that they might be to other people for all different types of reasons and i say that because people have literally told me like it's kind of a lot of jargon i don't understand i'm like how do i break it down in a way so that they can get it and be like actually you know to bring it all the way back to us talking about our families like border border abolition is a thing we could do you know when i think about the fact that i am chicana which is like a term I deliberately use, which is like very loaded for a lot of different reasons. I'm like, I do that because one, it is a political identity, which is relevant to me, but also because I don't know when I think about my family's history, which is very complicated and we only went through some of it. it, They existed like in a borderless like society, really. Like they were scared of La Migra and like things like that. But like, their identity and their culture and who they were was was transcended borders. Yeah. And it's like, I think if you're going to identify as Chicana, like, you have to take that seriously. Yeah, <laughs> And yeah. you have to, like, not just be like, ask them and, like, shit like that. Like, sure. really sure. be like, we need to abolish the border as we know it. Why do we have the border? Right. So, I mean, I'll stop there because I can... Border abolition is something no, I can really... No, you got me... I mean, I got chills on the back end because the the Aslan the lazy Aslan identity politics is something that it f- sends me <laughs> uh, up, I up mean, a tree it's, I mean it's like anti-indigenous it's terrible I mean it's harmful it's ridiculous it's also like, ahistorical like it doesn't actually even map on to the reality of the actual borderlands at all exactly the, the, the thing though that you another thing Another thing you said uh, that – there's one thing you said throughout when you were talking about your misgivings about law. And I'm going to kind of take that and spin it a bit because I think there's a general critical attitude to abolition if we take the sort of Davis school approach. Like I think like the degree to which she benefited from her studies – uh, with Marcuse and in the Frankfurt School. And of course, there's some cool stuff now talking about how Angela Davis impacted Marcuse in the other direction and how that had a legacy there. And there's some scholarship 
I just I just got my eyes on a couple things, and I was like, oh, I gotta check that out. But like, like one thing that I think is 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 really clear here um, <laughs> is our families sort of we won the lottery of the border. Like we were, you know, I've talked I've talked to like Mexican nationals who resent in some ways the the Mexican American who gets to kind of have their culture before 1910, so pre-revolution, uh, like they kind of get to keep all this nostalgic Mexicanness, and the only exchange rate is basically uh, gringo racism, which you know, on balance, if you live in a very very heavily like Mexican American cultural site it's arguably not necessarily the highest thing to pay and so for a lot of them they're like i don't even know what that phrase means to be honest gringo racism i'm like you mean like people not thinking like the scene from selena where you got to be mexican yeah that kind of stuff like like in other words they're like you know like the worst thing you have to worry about is is you know being Mexican in the U.S., but you do it with a U.S. passport. You do it with a, you know right. all these things, and I think that's you know. One, oh, I see what you mean. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think one one of the impulses from from our very specific community is that whole Mas Americano narrative of like we're gonna out American the Americans, and by doing that, we actually end up like you noted with like the anti-indigenous thing, but we actually end up actually abandoning. Um, Latin America for the sake of this very exclusive and very exceptional concept of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And I think I think sort of while it is in some ways tr- true that our familial ties to the border drive an abolitionist, abolitionist sentiment, it's also the case that there's a choice to be made there, right? Exactly. And we're making the choice for a very particular understanding of the good life, which actually one might say is is both an option in the sense of being a privilege, but it's also an option in the sense of that this is a decision, like this is a political decision that we're making and, and understanding that is that, you know. Um, it, I mean, that's also why people become CBP officers. I mean, they're making their own, yeah. meaning like our people become CBP off, like officers or oh, ICE yeah. officers yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, yeah. Who do you think built that wall? Exactly, and it's like... <laughs> I mean, the hands, the brick-and-mortar wall. Right, it wasn't and it's white like... People. You gotta... That's why... One thing that I'm trying to get more comfortable with is actually talking about Chicanidad, like, however you want to phrase it, like... Yeah. And being like, actually, we need to start... If, if we're still gonna say this is a thing... Which, like, some people are like, we shouldn't even say it's a thing. Yeah. I have a lot of reasons, personally, why it's a thing for me. Yeah. We have to actually, like, really redefine and let a lot of shit go and be real that actually, like, when we say the border crossed us, that means fuck the border, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, like, uh, oh, man, I mean, I used to think that there was this pan-Latin-American 
I mean, we all got fed a lot of bullshit. Honestly. I, yeah. you know, I did this when I was finding myself. Like this is when I was reading Octavio Paz. This was whenever I was reading the kind of going into the kind of Mexican authors and trying to. And what I ended up doing was overcorrecting, and I think that's what, at least in my life, I'm just constantly overcorrecting on shit, right? And so, you know, whenever I was trying to find a kind of identity, which, you know, I'm lost in, in Anglophone terms. I'm somewhere between Latin American and, and Mexican American, and the Mexican American thing for me is almost, almost like I want to take up the Cheech and Chong mantra now that i'm in the academy and can kind of like play with right. it it's 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 for me it's almost like a like a like a like a rehashing of the n-word of sorts for 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 mexican right like it's like because that chichin chong mexican americans you know go to community college take spanish and get a b line is to me like sort of like it's like a a tattoo in the psyche of you know mm-hmm. mexican heritage in the u.s but i have a friend actually who's funny from Chicago. So the reason I don't use Chicano is only for a stupid reason. I heard it for the first time and I thought it meant Mexicans in Chicago. (laughs) That's funny. And I've never been able to change it from my head. So I understand. My mom is who got me to really understand it. I mean, she has some of the literature from like the 70s Mm. (laughs) still. Mm. Like, I forget what it's called, like, Grito del Sol, like different, okay. like small, like newsletters, and like she was the one who really kind of instilled it in me, and not in like a forcing it in me kind of oh, way, beautiful. just yeah. like her kind of talking about herself and who she was at that time, and who my, you know, they very much were part of that, and now I consider myself a further extension of that. I and we don't awesome. s- we don't see eye to eye in a lot of things, but like that's how it goes. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I and mean, when like, I think of my great grandmother having those conversations, you know, those interviews and shit, I'm sure. like, it's the same thing. And it's yeah. like again, you make a choice. And yeah. for me, I consider my choices to be most aligned with like well, let's get personal with my like great grandmother, basically yeah, being yeah, like yeah, yeah. her understanding of like community. She did a lot of community organizing and through the church, actually. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was about that and and nothing else. And I think for other people in my family, it's like individualism and like respectability yeah. politics and like yeah. what you were explaining earlier on. And I'm just kind of like, like you said, being like, fuck you to the, you know, academy or, or whatever. For me, it's the same. That's how I feel about the law, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the second part, and that's that whole critical attitude, is I think, like, deeply nested in the kind of attitude that abolition demands is a kind of dissatisfaction. And it's not just an outward externalized dissatisfaction, but I think it also always has to kind of be in your own stomach. Like, you have to be kind of, like, unsure about yourself. And and not, like, in some, like, sort of... Well, I guess it is existential, but like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Like, is this enough? You know, like for me, one of the biggest problems I've had with abolitionism as a concept is uh, for me, there's there's a potential distinction between abolition on the one hand to abolish and disestablishment on the other. So like to disestablish is more moderate, right? So to disestablish means for me it's like divesting it's defunding it's 
taking apart the structures, which I feel like my day job is supposed to be about that. I mean, in many ways it's not, but I, I do two kind of roles. You know, I'm an attorney who just litigates, and then I'm also a policy person, policy counsel, aka yeah. I give my opinions about a lot of things. And through there, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to break the system and the structure apart and to take the power away from it. But the flip side is actually, for me, building something up. I mean, right. that's the part that I think a lot of people people who haven't thought deeply about abolition don't engage with it much. And that is about the community and that is about redefining the way that we show up for one another. Totally. How we deal with harm, yeah. how we deal with violence, how we deal with like all different types of really tough things that are going to happen because we're human. Right. And the need for a kind, a, a need for a different kind of institution or a, a different kind of collective way of dealing with it. Cause like one thing that I was thinking as well, um, whenever you were talking was like, Oh man, I want to put a giant disclaimer across this to say libertarians are not invited to this party. Like, you know, cause there is, you can find this kind of, um, and I think sometimes here, this is where like the anarchists are, are interesting. And there are, there, there is of course a strand of a kind of, uh, um, Oh, I love anarchists. Yeah, yeah I'm no, I... with anarchists too, but they have to be the right kind. And the problem in the U.S., I find, is that every other anarchist who uses the term anarchist comes out later as a, actually just a libertarian of sorts. Not right. the an I, Shout out to the anarchists I know who are not like that, who are doing yeah. the important mutual aid and community-focused work. Those are the anarchists I know. And yeah, I really value them in my life and what they offer in terms of like theory of change or whatever you want to call it because they were like yeah why the fuck waste your time with these state institutions right and for me you know people always want to like first of all i'm a baby abolitionist i've really only started thinking about it in terms of like reading books and sure. talking and doing organizing on for since 2017 so you know that's not that long yeah so want to preface with that but people always want to try to like pinpoint this kind of abolition is like the best kind of abolition or this one. And I'm like, they're all in conversation with one another. Yeah. yeah. And they're constantly like learning and reminding, at least in my mind, the other one, like, Hey, don't forget this part of it. So yeah. to me, the anarchists who are also abolitionists are always like, sure, go do that, I guess. But like, I don't really relate to it. And that's not what I'm about. And I, yeah, really respect and admire that work because I'm like, yeah, you can't do this without that work. Like you can't, it's, it's not abolition to just me be trying to take out criminalization bars and, you know, federal legis immigration legislation. Like, right. and a lot of the times I end up being like, well, someone's got to do this really corny, corny, like annoying job. Yeah. And Maybe I'm the best situated because yeah. I have this certain type of like institutional power and I have a degree and I'm not afraid of wearing a suit and going into a meeting and saying what I think about right. certain things. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a constant, it's a constant debate in my mind. Sure. It's a I, constant cognitive dissonance, dissonance that I struggle with. No, totally. And I love the struggle. T to me, that's like, that's... That's the hard part that people don't well, want to do. It's the hardest part. And I think it's the part where like, you know, 
when you close the door, when you open a bottle of wine or you crack a beer, whatever you need to do, like there's a point in time in which people of a certain political orientation who strategically probably have to present a certain kind of public certainty, or at least moral certainty at least, are also permitted to talk about doubts and misgivings and fears and and you know i think sometimes the left's utopianism uh fails at projecting its fragility and the fact that like you know a lot of us uh who identify with the project aren't even sure if we're included in it you know like i'm like i hear you talking about being boring like you know when it comes right down to it i'm probably not even the kind of socialist that people think i am on the internet i'm probably something close to closer to like a mil a late million liberal or like you know like like i still believe in stuff like rational dialogue and like i'm a very like you know uh, uninspiring uh image of the left um some of it though biographically is that whenever i present myself in in my body my history my ancestry and stuff I don't have to say anything. I don't have to introduce anything. I've even been told after the fact that everyone just thought it was another white academic or whatever. But at whatever point at which, you know, race intersects with the argument and the reasons and all those things, I know something different can happen than where it could happen for maybe other people who are situated in a different way. Um, but anyhow, th these insecurities, I think, are... I, I wish that those who have bad faith against leftist politics could trust a bit more that there is not a false sense of security or certainty having also said there is a moral project of which i think within abolitionism like you know you have to have you have to be this is i think the spiritual uh uh element of abolition is you have to believe you know there's no room, I don't think. You have think, to too. believe, and you have to actually do the thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah, actually... Yeah. It's not just, like, a theory, you know? Yeah. Like, or it shouldn't just be a theory. It's a practice. And yeah. for but me, at least, works. that's... Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's... that's like... No, it's You're huge. fighting for the people that... You're fighting for us, first of all. You're fighting for all of us. Right. But, you know, when I'm constantly reminding federal legislators, like, actually, you or uh, I won't even go there. When I'm convincing other non-black attorneys around me that actually we need to we need to say black people, not yeah. just communities of color, like yeah. because black liberation is something that very much informs my politic. Absolutely. Like, I that that to me is like a moral project you know like that to me is something that very much guides how i make decisions and how i go into spaces particularly with other non-black people i, I want to get i want to i want to like dive into this just quickly because um i'm actually giving a talk tomorrow about anti-black white supremacy within communities of color and like i know that you know that while i will not be speaking autobiographically <laughs> Our community is not like some exceptional moral zone of uh, of, of black acceptance and anti-racism by any means, right? And and I, I think mean, like like yes. obvious, right? You know, yeah. Um, 
And I, you know, I mean, Atlanta happened last week and I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that like, this probably isn't the week I would have wanted to give this talk um, in terms of timing and current events. Nonetheless, I give it with this strong as ever commitment to this exact point you made, which is that, you know, the project uh, of, of black liberation is the project and it's not a, uh, and it's not it's not divided by identity uh, because black liberation entails the abolition of whiteness which is a concept and an idea that the only reasons why within certain communities such as my own such as our own that that the whiteness as an ideal is desired or Europeanness or whatever we can gather or whatever is for the same exact reasons. And here's a, a maybe something you already knew, but something that I didn't know, but I was reading through the 1619 uh, resources of the New York Times put together. Because I naively ma made a kind of stupid assumption. And I was like, I never liked 1619 as a date very much. Because I was like, what about 1492? What about the fact that like I know slavery existed in the West Indies, for instance, in the 16th century? And so I wanted to dig in and be like, why the whole I know I know that the Virginia arrival of 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 the of the first ship with 25 enslaved people in it. Like I know that story. But I wanted to know how they were telling the story. And you know what? I was an idiot for, for asking those questions. They're all answered in the text. <laughs> and 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 whenever I read it, uh, what blew me away is that that ship that landed in Virginia and 1619 was originally destined for Mexico. It was a Portuguese ship and it was uh, picked up by English pirates who brought that ship and these enslaved African black people to Virginia, which was sort of like the Genesis story of the American shadow slavery mm -hmm. uh, institution. But to me, what's so bitterly powerful about that is that that ship was taken from its ordinary route from Iberia to Latin America for the already established uh, institution of, uh, of, of enslavement and slavery there. I mean, Brazil as a country, this is where the Portuguese mm -hmm. primarily were, were, were headed towards. Brazil, for the first 250 years of its existence, 70% of its immigrants were enslaved people, enslaved black people. 70, not 25, mm -hmm. right? And so to me, like, there's something actually that goes way deeper than just the sort of moral, but the actual imbrication of the historical lines of, of enslavement and the fact that, like, as mestizos, as Latin Americans, as a Chicana, as a Mexican-American, you know, we're part of the 1619 story ancestrally and a very hell yeah and and and, and not just a kind of m moral loose way but like you know that was headed for the shores of the early nuevo mundo of of the spanish and and the portuguese and the spanish had to split that up because rome was dividing the spoils of colonialism for them and and kind of arbitrating that for them and so there you get like the catholic church over that and mm -hmm. i mean as i as i dug more and more into the 1619 project which i stupidly prejudged and i'm glad that i corrected myself there and and did my homework um i was just blown away by the fact that like you know the moral project is 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 unified and has been unified in my in my mind and my heart for a long time but the history checks out too 
right? Like all the receipts 100%. are there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's in the border. Like it's in it's in everything. I mean, it's in the concept of citizenship all the time. I'm like, we're not analyzing like even the concept of a U.S. citizen and how fucking anti-black it has been <laughs> and how it's it still continues today. I mean, it it kind of like something I think about a lot is the fact that like we're actually this is so fucking basic, especially to indigenous people. But it's something that really does resonate with me a lot sure, is sure. that indigenous peoples, which is that like we are living in the nightmare of colonization like right now. I think a lot of people tend to think of it as like understand. I mean, I I get why I used to think of it like this, but it's like it was back then. It's in the past. Mm-hmm. It was so long ago, but it's like no, it's still happening right now. When we think about what's happening at the border, when we think about the people who are in detention, when we think about people who are quite literally enslaved in this country, like in prisons and jails, like this is it. We're we're in the nightmare of our or some respective ancestors, not all of our ancestors, but and I don't. That, and that's to me is also like, how can anyone tolerate this? <laughs> yeah. How can anyone tolerate the fact that we're enslaving black people right now, <laughs> that yeah. we are forcibly blocking black people and indigenous people? Because that's who's coming through the fucking border, at least the southern border. <laughs> right. Like, right, 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 right. And we're acting like that's normal. Like we're acting like there's any valid reason for that. I mean, I was just thinking about this on, on Saturday which was, you know, I was doing a legal brief, I was doing research, and I was just getting, like, annoyed at the law and, like, getting annoyed at, like... I should probably make a quick note, though, for the listener who may not be informed, but, like, the displacement of people in Latin America today is not just, like, a faceless, vague identity. It's indigenous people who are being very, very targeted in terms of displacement from their own home nation states and through international forms of economic disenfranchisement and land dispossession who are then making their way as displaced indigenous peoples to the united states and at the united states border are met then with this whole citizenship ideal and all these things there just because some people are going to be like i thought that the people crossing were from guatemala Uh, just so they know you're like they're indigenous communities from these different nation states yeah and which are also like violent in so many different ways. Mexico is incredibly violent to indigenous people from Central America. Yeah. But when you really are like, I was thinking about it on Saturday, like Saturday night when I was doing this legal brief and obviously I got super distracted by what I was doing because I got lost in this thought where I'm just like, how can we seriously be like, there's a surge at the border. There's like a crisis at the border. It's like a completely made up concept. And like, yeah. why do we got to protect the border? Like, who, who, what are we protecting here? We're protecting, like, this bullshit American identity that I don't want anything to, a part of. Like, even, I, I am a part of it. But, like, why are we protect? like, why is that the thing that's motivating us? And, you know, people say, oh, drug traffickers. And you're like, you can't see, this isn't going to show up on the audio, but my face is like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah, how can yeah, yeah. the United States government take seriously say something like that when a lot of the economic or political instability within the countries from which people are fleeing is because of our government's direct intervention 
connecting to drug traffic. You know what I mean? Like because or of our even, obsession even with the war on drugs. I mean, right? The exactly. clientele is American. I mean, you know, you can exactly. literally just watch Netflix and figure that one out. You know, it's not that exactly. Hard. And it's like, like, I mean, it's so basic. But I'm, you know, something that I'm thinking about is like, you know what? Like maybe you should just say the basic things because people apparently need to oh, be yeah. reminded about them all the time. Which is that like. Yeah, white people use drugs. They use them a lot. And they're not being enslaved for it, put into a cage. Like, we are caging human beings. Like, we are quite literally putting them into cages, separating them from their family, separating them from, from sunlight, from basic things because of things like drug trafficking or drug use or all these different things that you're like, y'all do the same fucking thing. Like I, I went to law school. I remember knowing he now works for like a very big investment bank, whatever. I don't even know, but he's making a lot of money. Yeah. And he would talk to me about how when he was at Cornell, he was a drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's cool. But like his whole life trajectory hasn't been completely like devastated. Sure. Not to mention that like criminal arrests and criminal convictions are also like based on like a moment in time. So you're like... Really? Like, we're going to dehumanize people and put them into cages because of things like this? Or say yeah. they don't belong here? Or doubly punish them because of it? I mean, it, it, like, makes me sick that people even take these things seriously. Sure. And this is when I think abolition and at least my advocacy is, yeah, I actually do think it, we need to talk about the moral imperative of the <laughs> things that we're fighting for. Like... I'm a little tired, and I and I say this in a self-dragging way because I do this. Yeah. I'm a little tired of, like, talking about something like immigration in terms of policy or lawmaking or the Biden administration or the data. It's yeah. like, we don't... I'm over it. Like, we yeah. actually need to just stop saying that we should, we should be dictating or being punitive to people because they weren't born here. Like... Right. Their granddaddies didn't go through that shit, you know? Or like when I was listening to last week when the House voted on HR6, which is the American Dream and Promise Act, right. which I won't even get into, but there was another bill that was being voted on, which is a farm worker bill, which hearing the way that the GOP was talking about this bill and how much harm it would do, it kind of like hit me in a really personal way, thinking about my Mexican hillbilly grandmother and thinking yeah. about other family members who migrated from Mexico to the United States and were farm workers. Sure. I'm like, you, They there was one quote that was like, we don't want to give them citizenship or a pathway to citizenship for their spouses, for their children. I'm like, wow, you're really fucking mad that I'm here and that a yeah. lot of us are here. And it's like, why are you mad about that? And it's like, oh, because you're just a fucking white supremacist and a fascist. And that's like your motivating force. So if that's gonna be your motivating force, my motivating force is gonna be actually calling your ass out and being like, that's who you are. I can't take you seriously. And no, I don't actually believe in a rational dialogue for this reason, because I'm like, we are we are existing in the same paradigm. Hmm. Like, and I think the key there is rational. Like it's, um, you can't reason with someone who is showing themselves to be incapable of not just the 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 logical side but but like reason entails a, a moral conscience right exactly and i think like there's like a um there's a game that the right and and i'm being i'm gonna self-drag too like i will play at the logic and facts game 
with the Logic and Fact boys on the internet, right? To show them mainly that, like, guess what? You don't have a corner on Logic and Facts. But one of the, the things that prevents that from ever going anywhere, which I agree with you about, is that we don't share the, the, the basic moral principles or moral commitments. And what they need isn't better logical or factual evidence. What they need they know. is a change of heart and repentance and conversion of sorts. Not just of sorts, a real conversion, an actual conversion of the heart, like an actual, right. you know, and, and this can happen. Now, I, I, believe in, I believe in redemption and salvation. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know. I'm an abolitionist. I believe in, in redemption and these things as well. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, folks like that, it's about power. And that's what I'm, I think about it. I always do it in terms of a power analysis. I'm like, fine, you're not going to fucking convert or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Like, then you're going to have to be outpowered. And yeah. I'm not going to waste my time, you know, especially mm -hmm. as someone who's from Indiana who grew up in the midst of a lot of this sure i'm like i get that you probably love your kids you love your family you go to the bakery whatever but i'm here to outpower you and i'm not focusing or putting my energy mm. into trying to find a compromise with you and it yeah. disgusts me you know when i was listening to these different speeches i was doing it for work it was not for fun and when i was listening to all these different speeches i was like the Democrats don't have one back, one bone in their backbone to just be like, fuck y'all. Like, yeah. we actually have the power here and we're doing what we think is right. And actually, we, we think this is the pathway or whatever you want to call it, the pathway forward for the United States. Like, this is what we think it is. It's like, it's kind of, again, basic. But when I, I always like to think of Gangs of New York which mm. is the Martin Scorsese film. Yeah, of course. And it really is about, still I've had a lot of things, but the thing that I think about is like the nativism of that yeah. time yeah. and New York City at that time and the fact that the same conversations are, are happening now yeah. and people don't want to just be real about it and don't want to just be like, you're literally only motivated by white supremacy. Yeah. How, I mean, why should is, I take you seriously? Yeah. I mean, to me, this is a challenge, though, of this kind of global neoliberal where everything's kind of buzzy and soupy. You know, I've said this before to a certain amount of scandal, but like, if you're a stone cold ethno state, theocratic, fascist, sympathetic uh, racist, I'm actually willing to say that there can be a more directly there can be a true political encounter there that can't happen whenever you're living under scales and and layers of false consciousness and you know right forms of like they know, brawled agility. in that movie the opening exactly. scene in that movie is yes. them being like let's fucking go then yeah. like let's kill each other and they felt not that i'm justified. promoting that but yeah. i'm promoting a real confrontation of these things and look i was reading but about that the requires revolts. that that requires letting go of all these ne neoliberal things and capitalism and whatever but yeah yeah sorry go i ahead. mean you caught me on a good on a good day because you know i um when I finished reading again from just the 1619 stuff, uh, 
some of these first-person accounts of the slave revolts um, and of and and of the uh, details on the revolts of enslaved peoples in the U.S. and the and and on the Middle Passage and all these things, I was like, yeah, pacifism, that's not going to work here. Like it's just literally like like there's no you know Bartolomé de las Casas has this wonderful passage where he actually says the indigenous person who believes in their God is permitted to use violence against the Christian who tries to convert them if they're appealing to the to the to the primacy of their conscience and they should fight and they should kill you if because they are convicted of of their God and so you either got to find a different way that doesn't require violent encounter or you got to stay away um and when i was reading that you know 16th century a friar a dominican friar um who himself went through a lot of stages of evolution and change in his own thoughts i was like man why did i play along with pacifism for so long <laughs> i mean i think about abolition of chattel slavery and that in the time period of abolitionists, which was decades. Um, and I think about it in terms of there, again, from like what I said earlier on, there's a lot of different types of abolition. And there were sure. a lot of different people doing a lot of different roles in that time, whether it was mutual aid, like things like the Underground Railroad, and sure. people literally being like, I will protect you in my home and I will communicate right. in all of these like secretive ways so that I can be part of this and lead people to freedom. And there were people who were politicians who were out there on the pulpit, like going at it and like getting into those political debates and like not seeding an inch about it. And then there were people like in slave revolts and people like John Brown who were like, yeah. we got we got to take up arms. And it's like, so to me, it's we are still doing that mm. now. And, you know, Mary McCaba, I'm like going to totally poorly paraphrase her, but she talks about the fact that like abolition and being an abolitionist doesn't, you know, because people are like, well, what is the job you should have? Or like, what do you, what is a good job like to have as an abolitionist? And it's like, no, it's about applying an abolitionist praxis to mm. whatever it is that you're doing in the space that you're in. And that's where I end up being like, fuck, am I the person who has to argue yeah. with these federal electeds or deal with this federal legislation? I mean, and like, don't get me wrong, like, obviously, like, it wasn't totally successful. Like, that, right. that, that's why we still have forms of, we still have slavery or enslaved people in cages throughout well, this, this country. This is what crushes More me about what you're saying, right? So this is what really gets me and, and kind of moves me is that like, it goes without saying that you're not winning every day, right? Like I you're lose not, a lot. You I lose, lose so yeah. much. And to me, Constantly. the idea of losing, like, I'm going to give you just a quick thing. Like, Paulo Freire, he, he dedicates his book, Pedagogia de Press, Pedagogia do Primido, to this very weird Portuguese word, Brazilian Portuguese word, called the um, uh, uh, esfarapado. And the esfarapado in like Spanish is usually translated to desarrapado, which means like the ragged dressed person. And farapos mean rags, and so you can see that. But what he was actually talking about was this militia group from the south of Brazil who were fighting against the state, and they never won, ever. They lost every battle. Like, like, like more historically than have ever been lost in Brazilian history. 
And for him, that image of the desfarapado, the, the, the person who's willing to go out and just lose, <laughs> that for him was, was, the, was the person he dedicates his pedagogy of the oppressed to, right? I mean, um, in the highest form I can say it, like, your work to me is the work of the desfarapado that Freire was talking about. You're going into this place or you may talk about taking power, but you're not the powerful usually, I don't think, in your no, work. No, I'm not. Very much so. And Yet you're still talking like a radical person with power who's really willing to spend the money you have in your pocket. It's, you know, like, I lose... I want. There's so many ways I can talk about this, and I'm trying to, like, find the safest way to talk about it. Sure, sure, <laughs> but sure. I am met constantly with this argument's going to lose. You're not going to win this argument. That's not going to work because they're going to do this. And I'm like, you, do you think I don't know that I have, not me, by the way, yeah. the person I'm representing in this court proceeding, that they have every single thing going against them? No, I'm making an argument that I think will be the best argument. And doing that power analysis of how the law works as well and saying, you know what? We're going to do it. We're going to fight. I mean, like, this is why people are really fascinated with the participatory defense campaign of, of a, around a client of mine, Usman Darbo, because that man lost years. I mean, he lost years of his life, but mm -hmm. he also lost, at least within just the deportation proceedings, constantly. And I was right there losing with him. Mm. And I had to be real and say, you know what? Again, it's about power and how, what is power? Like, how do we overcome this? And I'm like, power also comes from community and it comes from basically putting a light on this bullshit mm -hmm. and affirming his humanity at every step of the way, which also means not downplaying his criminal arrest history or sure. any of these facts sure. and saying, no, this person actually has this whole fucking community behind him and that's who we're fighting for because that's our that's someone in our community. Yeah. And the amount of times I was met with some hater ass can't do attitude, I'm like, that's not my problem. Again, you're just projecting your own things onto me, but he wants to fight. My job is to fight with him. We're gonna go and keep going until this yeah. system just gives like an inch, like not even an inch, like the space between my fingernails. Like yeah. And that's what you have to choose to do every day. And like one thing I'll say about it is that I was listening to this Angela Davis interview on some podcasts the other, like maybe a few weeks ago. And she talked about the fact that like back in the day, <laughs> her and other, you know, revolutionaries were like talking about prison abolition and being like, we'll never see it in our lifetime. Like it's this like distant thing. And she's like, but now I see how far it's come and how many people are understanding it and agreeing it. And she was like, I actually think we are kind of doing ourselves a disservice mm. and thinking that we can't do it in our lifetimes and that we can't make that immediate impact. And that's why you have to wake up every day being like, let's go, <laughs> like, yeah. let's do this. Like, because I mean, what else? What else are we doing? And that doesn't just mean like going to court and like yelling at the government and like stuff like that. It means also community. It yeah. means, you know, transformative justice, restorative justice. It means all of these other things mm -hmm. 
as well. But that is the struggle. And that is, if you want to li- at least for me, living a life of integrity means doing that. Um, but it's not wow. easy. And I lose all the time. And yeah. Well, uh, this time you spent with me here has just been... Yeah, not a loss, to put it lightly. Um, Thank you for for talking about this with me and sharing your time. I wonder if you have any um, any, any final thoughts about what I think is at the heart of abolition, which we didn't talk, which we which we talked about constantly without naming it, but obviously like liberation, right? it's the it's a mirror image I see uh, on the other side of abolition is of course liberation and that's literal figurative historical spiritual theological the whole kit and caboodle I wonder if you could just end with a few words for us on liberation on liberation I mean that like you said that is what we're fighting for in every form I mean that's why when people get really hung up about reforms and like, I I don't want to get into the whole non-reformist reform because there's like a lot of different opinions about like even naming it that way. But it's like, to me, I'm fighting for liberation of all oppressed peoples. So that to me means ending capitalism, ending racial capitalism. (laughs) That means ending the U.S. nation state as we know it. And that means fighting for those things every day even if you aren't quite sure if you'll ever see it (laughs) because to me liberation is all oppressed peoples having the freedom to live without the state constantly having the boot on people's necks and trying to kill them and deprive them of their right to liberty and their right to live their life to the fullest extent that they self-identify for themselves, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's not... That's, to me, the negative account of liberation, which I think is super important. Um, I'm going to interject and and maybe provoke the positive account of liberation, of, like, what is liberation for, not just what is it from. And I would say I think it's, it has something to do with love. 100%. Right at the, you know, and so, you know, in some ways, liberation was a wrong note to end on. We should have ended on the note of love. So maybe try again for me and uh, let us go with something about love. Not to quote Che Guevara, but I'm going to. I mean, a real revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. I mean, a love for the community, a love for yourself, a love for the people. And... One thing that I think abolition has also helped me understand, at least about myself, is the need for self-love, a spiritual practice, and constantly connecting to those things within yourself. Because when you also do that for yourself, that redefines your relationships with people around you. That redefines your understanding of the world. Like, I very much believe in that quote because that is at that is what we're fighting for, and that is why we're fighting. Like, that's these great feelings of love and wanting everyone to have the freedom to to live their lives in the way that they want to live their lives 
and that's what the state and everything is depriving people of. Like, not to bring it back to the negative, but it's to me, it's it's not negative. And I think a lot of people actually don't want to talk about that component or they shit on Che Guevara or don't even, like, understand that quote. But to me, that quote is really at the heart of it. And it, like I've been saying, it's a moral imperative and a spiritual journey as much as anything else, for me, at least. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology, Season 1, and special thanks to Sofia Elena Gurule. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whip and Stock Publishers, Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, and Commonweal Magazine. And also a very special thanks once again to our featured sponsor, the Juan Diego Network. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Ghostly, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to our wonderful sponsors and also to the wonderful friends of the show uh, without, well, like I said in the beginning, without the Juan Diego Network, I don't think uh, for all the hopes and dreams and plans, Folk Phenomenology would have launched uh, to any degree of what it has uh, thus far. And without these friends of the show and their support, both their moral support, but above all their friendship, their solidarity, their conviviality, I don't believe that... uh, any of this would have would have happened and, and would be carrying on as it is right now. Uh, so make sure to take a look at their links and you'll also find um, a tip jar. And if you'd like to drop in a tip, all those uh, contributions will be saved to hopefully jumpstart uh, the recording of season two. I have to say, um, I'm learning a lot in the production process. Um, I'm learning a lot uh, about things I perhaps could have and should have done earlier, particular technical aspects and whatnot, and even things regarding the mix and the balance and all of these things. I have a vision in mind and I have an idea, but to be honest, um, part of phenomenology is the study of appearances, but it's also the attempt to make an appearance of kinds, uh, uh, of a certain kind. And in this case, this podcast itself as a form of media would be exactly that appearance. So feel free to email or to DM or to message or even to say publicly things that you'd like to see. It's not always the case that I can change everything, but uh, I am sensitive to how uh, your side of the phenomenology, your perception of the appearance of the show, uh, is what kind of impression that's making on you, the folks of folk phenomenology. This isn't easy listening from the kinds of conversations to the presentation of them within a soundscape. But I also don't think it should be too difficult either. I'm at least striving to maybe make something that's neither one nor the other. So we'll see. Next week's 
episode is an interview that I have simply been dying to share. It's the interview I did with Vanessa Zuleta Goldman on liberation theology, where I believe something special happened that stands out for me within this season of standouts. Simply speaking, in a kind of way similar to this week, um, Sophia and I are friends and we spoke to each other in a very um, colorful and direct and plain and even vulgar way. And afterwards, actually, we spoke for another hour and a half, maybe two hours, just, you know, just talking and catching up because we don't see each other much. And, uh, and it was wonderful to, uh, to just talk. I had never spoken with Vanessa Zuleta Goldman before, but I knew that I wanted to speak with her about liberation theology. And perhaps that's why it was so unexpected that our conversation moved from the sources and the source texts and the histories and the ideas of liberation theology and reached an apex moment where we simply and even intimately shared our faith and gave a kind of testimony to what we take to be true about the Christian gospel. And that was not planned or expected, and it was certainly not my intention going in, but it was the fruit and the result of our conversation. And I believe that that fruit speaks to the power of the interview, but above all to the power of this idea of loving the world through a kind of delight. Just as today, there was a great deal of uh, laughter and joy and sharing of our lives, and also, well, just plain and unvarnished talk between friends. Next week, there was a similarly kind of unvarnished conversation, but instead of revealing, you might say, this coarse human attribute of an encounter of two good old friends, next week we find an encounter between two total strangers who end the conversation in literal tears of joy sharing something they share in common in their particular affinities for uh, their religion and their faith. So please don't miss out on next week's episode with Vanessa Zuleta Goldman. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. To find out more about me and my work, you can see my website, samrocha.com. Well, until next time, go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't know the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them 
by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Mm -hmm. It's where you find it. Mm -hmm. It's where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you know where it carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And I mean Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.